In our last couple episodes, we've talked about this idea that there are multiple possible futures for us. There's a future where we get it together. We layer on all the possible solutions. We adapt to a changed climate, but we avoid the worst impacts of catastrophic warming. We work the problem. And then there's the future where we don't, where society collapses. It's every person for themselves. It's the walking dead in a couple of generations in parts of the world where the world is, in fact, uninhabitable. And out in the Southern California desert, past the moving geysers and the receding Salton Sea and the boiling hot geothermal plants, is a place that's a little bit close to that second possible future. It's called Slab City. I visited this summer with producer Caitlin Esch. This looks like the apocalypse already came, right? Like this is where people fled the end of the world. And they know how to they know how to stay alive, they know how to take care of themselves. Yeah. The Slabs, as it's also known, is a squatters community built on the slab foundations of buildings from an abandoned military base. It's made up of survivalists, artists, and vagabonds who live entirely off the grid. I'm really trying to figure out if that person's naked. <laughs> He's doing a little car work. He's definitely <laughs> naked. There's no official electricity, no running water, no trash pickup, and no law enforcement out here. There is a wooden sign off the side of the road that reads, The Last Free Place. Hello, I'm Ryan. Nice to meet you. I'm Molly. So yeah, this is Jesse. Hi. Hi, Jesse. I'm Molly. This is Peter. Molly. Hi, Peter. Peter, Ryan, and Jesse have lived in the slabs for four years, or as they measure time out here, four summers. They're in their 30s and early 40s. Ryan came out here alone. Jesse and Peter came together from North Carolina, and they hooked up and started building. This 600-acre chunk of desert is one of the hottest places on Earth, and it's getting hotter. Here's Jesse. Our area expects to be hitting like 134 in the next five years, which is beyond the realm of what humans can survive. When we first visited the slabs in late June this summer, it was just over 100 degrees by 9 a.m. Here's Ryan. The thing actually I noticed about the heat out here is it's not the heat that gets you, it's the UV. Like you can feel right. the, that radiation kind of cooking you. And so I have to nap throughout the middle of the day. Jesse says everything eventually breaks or melts or blisters or just disappears. The sun eats things. Ryan, Jesse, and Peter call their part of the slab Rabbit Side. It's tucked away at the far edge of town next to a canal. Rabbit Side has a water service that brings fresh water in once a week in the summer, but they use the canal to water plants and animals. We have to cart in every calorie or drop of water that this takes to survive. And then including, like, the water isn't even out here naturally. Right. So without that canal, without our hands doing all this and transferring that water around, none of this would last three months. If we were to just walk away, all of this would just dry up. Was anything here when you got here? No. no Sand and seashells. We, we had some funds and we showed up and, and bought the, the core wood over top of the trailer. Yeah. Because um, that's, you know, that's going to be strong. You don't want that to fall on your stuff. Um, and since then, we've been acquiring a lot of free things. They have two dogs, both Chihuahua Jack Russell Terrier Crosses. The first time we met them, they had just had to put down their oldest dog that Jesse had had for 18 years. The rest of the animals at the camp, says Ryan. The chickens uh, and the ducks were actually rescued. We didn't 
initially plan on getting them or anything or, or purchase them, but there was other people out here that'll try to have animals and then they want to free range their chickens. Um, but the problem is, is there are free range dogs. The Rabbitside camp is actually wonderful. A wooden structure built over and around an old RV, wooden shelves full of little pieces of the desert like an art museum. There are rugs scattered in the sand, a piano in one corner that Peter played for us, a steel stock tank full of water that they use as a soaking tub, hutches for animals, and a little outdoor garden, even automatic water misters cued to sensors that come on when the outside hits a certain temperature. We've made a paradise. We truly have. But it's a paradise that's very close to the edge. And to survive in deadly heat with no infrastructure and no services takes an incredible amount of ingenuity and work. So you can see we have eight solar panels. These things are just shy of 300 watts each. So we have a 2,000 watt system. And then that all comes down into a bunch of batteries. Oh, holy cow. Like golf cart batteries. And they're all linked together. Ryan says batteries charge controllers and solar panels to make living out here possible, powering everything from box fans and swamp coolers to laptops, cell phones, and video cameras a little at a time. Peter earns the money that all three use to buy what they need. He's a manager at a nearby Walmart. And Ryan is constantly at work thinking up ways to improve their system. He's actually a total genius. I mean, he's got ideas about energy efficiency and energy storage that we could all use. The next thing for our solar panels is tilting them. The Lazy Boy recliner motor. I have a few kind of wacky inventions to try to eliminate batteries by storing energy different ways. You can take water and pump it up high. I want to see if I can make the sun pull sand up the tube. You could spun a flywheel, which kept the motor going. Uh, you could compress air. And then have that sand later fall down to spin a wheel, which is an hourglass. That's how I know if it's a good idea. I'm like, hey, is anybody else working on it? I'm like, well, like NASA. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, right on. Yeah, you thought you were ready for that survivalist lifestyle, right? Nope. Out here, the work of surviving is almost all you ever talk about. How yeah. much time as like a relative percentage would you say you spend like talking about powering your home? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it kind of feels like it comes up at least once a day. At least, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. To like, oh, do we need to turn off these items? Or like, is this, can we, can we keep running this thing right now? Or is that going to have to be turned off because we have to conserve to last yeah. us overnight? Uh, yeah. You got to do a lot of stuff, a lot of learning, and it's, and it's a constant battle. But yeah. it's good to learn now before, yes. uh, before everybody has to learn real fast. Before everybody has to learn real fast. Because, like I said when I got to Slab City, this is what the end of the world looks like in some ways. In fact, Peter says everyone in Slab City has already experienced some version of an apocalypse. He and Jesse are here because they had to escape an almost fatal domestic violence attack. Everyone has their reasons. This place, ultimately, is just kind of like the last default option for a lot of people. So, like, some people, like, they're on the run for something. Some people, like... They couldn't take care of themselves in any other situation, so like they, they lost their housing or, or whatever. And while Rabbitside is a triumph of invention, ingenuity, art, it is not a utopia. It's a future that we should try hard to avoid. Out here, says this little group, you have to have dogs to warn you if someone's coming or to protect you if they do. There's a baseball bat by the makeshift door. 
If you hear screaming at night, they say, you do not go outside. This, Jesse says, is the worst kind of preparation for the worst case scenario. Eventually, it's going to end up being kind of every man for himself. That's what it looks like. We don't want to be in a bunker um, and, you know, and just be eating rations and pretend like we're already living in end times. But we do want to set ourselves up in case it does become every man for himself. I'm Molly Wood. Welcome to How We Survive, a podcast from Marketplace about how finding solutions to the climate crisis is a messy business. This is Episode 8, How We Change. For our final episode, we're going past the tech to ask the bigger questions about what it's really going to take to survive. We've talked a lot about solutions, batteries, electrification, renewable energy, but the truth is no single thing is going to save us all by itself. We'll need every solution, and we'll need to make profound changes in our own lives, our politics, the way we do business. We'll need to pollute less, drive less, consume less, live and think and act differently with future generations in mind so we don't end up in our own versions of Slab City. Today, we'll talk about what we can do as individuals, but also how we can get everyone on the same team to make changes to dramatically reduce planet warming carbon emission. How politicians can make climate policy more relatable so our eyes don't glaze over when we talk about it. And how we in the U.S. might think we're the center of the universe. But when it comes to the climate crisis, the effects and the impacts and even some of the solutions will come from and have to come from everywhere. So that's what we're getting into this week, digging into what it really takes to survive. Let's go back to Slab City for a minute, because... Maybe this seems like a really extreme example, a lawless, wild place filled with anarchists and dropouts and people who fled society in some way who are technically living illegally on state-owned land. But at the same time, is it really? The truth is plenty of people are living on or very close to the edge of survival without institutional support and at the mercy of an increasingly extreme environment. As Jesse from Rabbitside told me, a lot more people are already living like slabbers than we realize. Other people live in this valley. They live in these extreme conditions. You guys drove past a whole bunch of people in Nyland living essentially the same way. They're just doing it legally. Yeah. It's just slightly easier for them to get water than us. But like somebody brings us water. We're not mining for it, you know? It, like, it, it, it's masked a lot more in a lot of the other places, but all the same stuff is happening all over the place. You just don't know about it. Remember, Nyland is one of the towns around the Salton Sea whose residents are hopeful that lithium extraction could bring much-needed economic activity and beneficial environmental changes. Currently, this part of the Imperial Valley has the highest rates of asthma and unemployment in the country. Not all Nyland residents generate their own power or dream up new ways of storing it. But just like the slabbers, most folks in Nyland have been thrown onto the front lines of the climate crisis. In fact, the poorest communities in the U.S. are also the places with the most pollution, the most at risk for climate disaster, and the least equipped to survive it. But this crisis is coming for everyone. And getting humanity to make dramatic change that may also involve sacrifice might be the hardest challenge we've presented all season. Way harder than pulling lithium out of the ground. The change is inevitable. It's like the author Octavia Butler writes, change is basically God. 
It rules our lives, whether we want it or not. But, she writes in Parable of the Sower, that hard work and preparation can shape the impact of change on our lives, instead of us being victim to whatever happens next. So, how do you convince people to do that hard work? Well, a good place to start is therapy. What I hear the most uh, is a variety of things. And, and I call this the three A's, anxieties, ambivalence, and aspiration. This is Dr. Renee Lertzman. She's a climate psychologist, which, yes, is a real job. She works with businesses and institutions to help them implement environmental strategies and policies. And a big part of this work is basically managing people's panic. So I hear tremendous anxiety uh, about, an, is there enough time, um, feeling overwhelmed, um, what can I do, you know, how can I be a meaningful contributor? Dr. Lertzman says if we're anxious, this can lead to feeling so overwhelmed with the problem of how to mitigate climate change effects that we just kind of lose focus and divert our attention away from the big scary problem. Sounds familiar, right? I see you. It's okay. Next, there's ambivalence. Like, I am attached to my ways of being or my identity or who would I be if I suddenly got rid of all my cars or, you know, who, who am I in this new world, in this new narrative? But where we want to get, she says, is to aspiration. Which is, I want to be, you know, have meaningful contribution. I want to be part of the solution. I want to be the change. This, says Dr. Lertzman, is the psychology of change. You can't just assume that people are going to jump right into change without first naming all of these fears and feelings, validating them, empathizing with them to try to find a path forward. Let me give you a real-world example that we found out about in the course of this reporting. Back in 2008, as part of a workplace sustainability initiative, Google tried implementing a new policy in the campus cafe, Meatless Monday. No meat would be served in the free company-provided cafeteria on Mondays. It was to promote healthier eating, and also animal agriculture is a big part of our carbon emissions. So it seemed like a pretty simple move with lots of upside, right? Oh no, not at all. See, Googlers, the employees, weren't consulted about the change. The company just went ahead and mandated it. And people freaked out. They did not want to be told what to do. In fact, a small group of employees within Google actually staged a protest by barbecuing in the parking lot. And that was it. Meatless Mondays died on the grill and never got implemented at Google. Google tried some other things, like moving the meat to the end of the buffet line so people would maybe fill up their plates before they got to the beef, and made an effort to get input from their employees before implementing more new things. But the real point is that change is really personal. It brings up lots of feelings, and even change that seems small can be hard to implement if people aren't brought into the conversation, if their perspective and feelings aren't at least heard. Dr. Lertzman says there actually are tactics that can work here, and they come from the world of politics. One of the precedents that comes to mind is what's called deep canvassing. Deep canvassing is the name for a fairly simple approach that was developed and perfected in 2008 by an LGBT activist named David Fleischer. The technique was used to build support for gay marriage. Before that, political canvassing had been mostly sort of like poll taking. The deep canvas, people are trained to have 10-minute conversations 
you start by asking questions. You're trained to listen well, and you're trained to talk about your own experience. This is how this issue touches me personally. This is what it means for me. What might this mean for you? And there's there's quite a lot of research that um, has shown that a 10-minute conversation like this can actually influence mindsets and behaviors. Right. 10 minutes. I just can't get over that. (laughs) You know what? Like so much can happen in even like three minutes. (laughs) When, when someone feels truly heard and, and recognized for their, you know, experience, uh, so much can change. It's like our, our defenses can soften and we can become so much more open to hearing and learning about something new if we feel that our own uh, perception or point of view is actually validated. It's, it's kind, of, kind of a magical thing. Taking even a small amount of time to hear people is the difference between Meatless Mondays, which could have been in effect for over a decade now, and cookout protests in the parking lot, and who knows what other change. So the phrasing going slow to go fast or the other phrase that I hear is, um, is, is change happens at the speed of trust. Mm. So Amazing. what happens is we let our own urgency hijack the situation and, and kind of blind us to the relational nature of what this work really requires. So first, you have to be willing to meet people where they are, even if you are chomping at the bit to get to solutions, which, hello, I'm extremely guilty of this. And so there are these strategies for doing that and including people. But what about persuading people to get on board with the slightly more, mm, let's say, boring parts of the job? Like, you know, policy. What governments do is one of the biggest factors that will drive human change. But it is dense, confusing, sometimes intentionally opaque. So kudos to the politicians out here willing to be profoundly cringy in order to make policy accessible to all. I rise to continue our celebration of hot FERC summer. As climate activist Fergie would certainly say, the Fergalicious definition is to make our planet cooler. This is Democratic Representative Sean Caston. He serves on the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. And before getting into politics, Representative Caston spent his career in the clean energy industry, finding ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now he's trying to use policy to get us to a greener future. This summer, he wrote a speech talking about the importance of FERC. That's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, advocating for them to get a fifth commissioner and to bring attention to new FERC-related legislation. And that speech was set to the tune of Fergalicious by Fergie, and it was promptly remixed and attained meme status. That's Fergalicious. It's hot, hot. So listen up, y'all, because this is it. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, better known as the F to the E to the R to the C, is one of the most important federal agencies to fight climate change. And if I'm doing this right, that's Fergalicious. It's hot, hot. I joked with somebody asked how you came to this, and I said, you know, all I really know is that there was... You know, I remember my Homer and my Iliad that sometimes, you know, the muse lands on your shoulder and all of a sudden you can speak directly to the gods. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't have thought the gods would be involved in viral content, but sure. The speech, Fercalicious, was actually the second speech in a series that Representative Kasten and his team put together this summer. They dubbed the series Hot Ferk Summer, which is, of course, a Megan Thee Stallion reference. 
tell us what FERC is for those who don't know and haven't seen your very relatable speeches about it yet. Is there anybody in the world who still doesn't know what FERC is? Hopefully not. That's hard to believe. Um, (laughs) So FERC is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, used to be called the Federal Power Agency. They are the, the, the independent federal agency that is responsible for setting rates for wholesale power markets, setting rules, making sure that we have a robust and reliable energy system. All that basically means that FERC is responsible for keeping our lights on and making sure our energy is affordable and ideally comes from a clean supply. And I guarantee that, like me, now, every time you say FERC, you will be bursting into song. You've really... Cause you've really started a movement well, here. Just, 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 just you know, if, if you knew all the songs that we've kicked around that have uh, that have gotten thrown out the rejection pile, we'll keep you singing all afternoon. Um, oh my gosh, what's yeah. on the rejection pile? Uh, oh, you know, I, you know, I, I, I personally liked, and the comms team threw this one out. I liked uh, Muddy Waters. Get your mojo, Firkin. Um, the uh, um, I, there was lots of singing a while ago of of Rick James' classic Super Firk. You know that one? Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, Super Firk, one of my faves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ferk House? Yeah, like Brick yeah, House? Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep. Now we could do a lot of the maybe. Ferk's going to be the one that saves me. The, uh, there's a lot of them out there. But I wondered, does it really matter if the Energy Regulatory Commission captures people's attention? So why, why did you try, you know, why did you decide to do this, to invoke <laughs> Megan the Stallion and Fergie to talk about FERC and the climate crisis. Who were you trying to reach? And, and does it include people your kid's age and my son's age? The answer is, is that we're talking about it right now, right? I mean, I've, I've spent my whole life focused on climate change. I've spent, you know, most of the time focused on the nexus between energy policy and energy markets, you know, whether as an, as an entrepreneur or now as a regulator. And this stuff gets really nerdy really quickly. It can get really frightening really quickly, you know, talking about the consequences of climate change to a, a point that makes people tune out. And, you know, I, I hope nobody heard what we did as being at all dismissive of the seriousness or the complexity of this, but it did get people talking about it. Um, I mean, I, you know, you know, Trevor Noah had us, you know, as their, their moment of Zen on The Daily Show. So now you get people thinking about this. We've got, um, you, you know, we're getting... You know, we're having conversations with people in the White House who say, I understand that you really want us to get this fifth FERC commissioner appointed. We hear you loud and clear. Um, those people weren't coming out because of some nerdy piece I wrote in a in a wonky utility magazine, right? They're they're coming out because we drew some attention to it and and there's there's probably some larger lesson in there about how to on on issues that are complicated and really important, you've you've got to speak the language of your listener. But I wonder to talk to me about the value in having people find a fun and a lighthearted way into a topic that can really seem overwhelming, either because it's complicated or because sometimes it just feels unsolvable. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, isn't that the the lesson of of every great comedian, right? Like, humor is powerful stuff. Um, um, you know, but you got to have the depth to go with it. You don't, you know, you don't want to be overly light about it. Um, and, and if I, if I knew how to do that really effectively, I would have done it a long time ago. Um, I'm, you know, we'll certainly continue to do it and learn from this moment, but the scope of what we have to do on climate, the scope of what we have to do on energy regulation is still an awful lot more. 
So, you know, trying to have his own version of a 10-minute conversation. Get people comfortable, amused, cringing, curious, and hopefully on board the change train. Side note here, Representative Kasten completed his Hot Furk Summer series with this little number, an ode to everyone's favorite, Dolly Parton. You see, when you tumble out of bed and stumble to the kitchen, pour yourself a cup of that ambition, your alarm clock, the lights, the hot coffee, they're in part, in no part, in no small part, thanks to the folks at FERC. We're working to ensure the robust transmission system that we take for granted every day. And when you jump in the shower hot enough that your blood starts pumping and drive the street before the traffic starts jumping, the charging networks for all those electric vehicles that stay cheap and reliable are also thanks to the folks working 9 to 5. Working 9 to 5. What a way to save the planet. Meeting people where they're at, right? Now, this has been a moment where there's a lot more attention on the climate crisis. A lot more anxiety, a lot more aspiration, I hope. And although it hasn't led to quite as much political change as we might want, we'll talk after the break about where real action and hope might come from. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplaces This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. So, yes, it's true that the U.S. has spent decades as one of the world's biggest emitters of carbon, not doing as much as we should to change that. And it's also true that most of the nations that joined the Paris Climate Accords back in 2015, pledging to cut emissions and keep Earth's temperature from rising, have definitely not held up their end of the deal. The planet is getting hotter as we speak. So what is the latest on what governments are doing to address the climate crisis? Well, here in the U.S., Congress passed a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill that actually does contain some action on climate. $66 billion for electrifying public transit, another $7.5 billion for building out a nationwide network of EV charging stations. There's even money for developing next-generation technologies like carbon capture and advanced nuclear reactors. Although a much bigger bill— that would provide over half a trillion dollars for combating climate change and help make electrification economically possible for middle-class Americans, is still being debated, at least as we were writing this episode. And its most aggressive actions might not make it out of the Capitol building at all. 
And then, of course, world leaders and diplomats and business leaders just finished two weeks of meetings and negotiations in Glasgow at the big COP26 summit. Nearly 200 nations have finally reached a COP26 climate agreement in Glasgow, Scotland. This had been billed as a moment for real cooperation and bold action that could propel us into a future that doesn't look anything like Slab City. And, well, there were some wins. One of the first major deals to be brokered at the COP26 climate summit is the promise by world leaders to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. In addition to the announcement on forests, another important development, a new initiative to cut methane levels by the year 2030. Over 100 nations and major businesses have signed the Glasgow Declaration on Zero Emission Cars and Vans by 2035. That means the end of the sale of combustion engines while rolling out more affordable electric vehicles. But overall, the summit failed to meet the moment. Diplomats from nearly 200 countries did come up with a deal to do more to battle global warming by reducing emissions. But there aren't any penalties for countries who fail to meet their targets. And actually, countries have until the end of next year to even have a plan to cut emissions in half by 2030. The final deal they hammered out during a summit literally referred to as the world's last best hope will not, according to scientists, keep the planet from warming to levels that will be unsurvivable for billions of people by the end of this century, with many worse impacts to come before that. Just flat out isn't enough. Even if all the pledges they made are actually followed, the last Best Hope meeting still left us on track for catastrophic warming. So this is about where the anxiety and the ambivalence may start to kick in, but hold on. I think that mindset is self-fulfilling. Like, you know, humans are the stories we tell ourselves, right? We, we, mm-hmm. what's it, what I was reading about this psychological pro- prospection. You, you become what you think you're going to become. This is Danny Kennedy, Chief Energy Officer for New Energy Nexus, a California-based nonprofit that helps to fund and support clean energy entrepreneurs and startups around the world. I called him because Danny has spent decades working on climate issues, facing some of the scariest climate-related world problems, and he's still an optimist. The good news is the rate of disruption is accelerating. Even if governments don't step up to the task, Danny says, plenty of significant changes are happening all over the world. The transition to electric motorbikes, for example. You know, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but... 75 million two-wheelers were sold on Earth last year, like bigger than bikes, the, the sort of mopeds and scooters that people get around on in Asia and Africa, you know, just that four or five billion person population. And last year, a third of them were electric. Probably five years ago, none of them were electric. Danny told me electric bikes and scooters could dominate the market in these parts of the world as soon as 2025. A heck of a lot faster than getting rid of gas and diesel-powered cars is happening, right? And while the U.S. can seem like a laggard, and is in many ways, here the transition to renewables and electrification is already happening because it's cheaper than fossil fuels. The real question is what's going to happen in Asia and Africa, where many people don't have electricity at all, but countries like, say, Indonesia are adding more power every day. If they do that with coal and diesel, which is how they currently get it, we have a problem, planet Earth. But the good news is 
Indonesia is finally realizing, God, it's so much cheaper to go solar and heck, we get a lot of sun here in Indonesia. And it's so much better in our crowded cities on Java to have electric scooters rather than internal combustion engine based scooters. So, you know, yes, you're right. There's this huge other population that's happening and, and those places and those technologies, the deployment of existing technologies will be the, the largest piece of the solution. And Tani says there's more to be hopeful about than we might think. Change is inevitable because of market incentives, yes, and because the generations that are going to feel this the most are already getting to work. Adversity is the mother of invention, right? And so you're seeing more resilient innovation, I would say, stuff that is both adaptive and ingenious in its uh, reduction of contribution to fossil fuels. And the other place where I see that, to be honest, Molly, is with young people. You know, if they were a country, I think you're sort of seeing this, this reportage these days about the dismay and despair that young people feel about the climate crisis, which of course is fair enough, and so they should. They should be pretty annoyed, shall we say, with those of us that sort of did this. But they're not stopping there. They're getting on with it. They're saying, I'm angry and I'm going to fix this, despite you lot. It's not like it's the end of the world. It's a world without end. The question we're now facing is what condition that's going to be in. And these young people are going to make sure it's as good as it can be with innovation that they're driving and not the, the old guard that did this to them. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a cliche to say the children are our future. But... It's their future, and it's no surprise that some of the loudest voices in the climate movement right now are coming from college kids and the Sunrise Movement and young people on hunger strike in front of the White House. And everybody else should give them a little help, because at the rate things are changing, scientists are actually losing the ability to even accurately predict what might happen as we pass more and more tipping points on the way to the, you know, potential collapse of human civilization. Okay, yes, I know, I promised way back in the trailer that this is not a podcast about the world ending. It's not that. Or at least, it doesn't have to be. Because really and truly, now is the time. There is always a time to get to work on your little corner of the universe. Your house, your car, or heck, your mass transit. Your gas stove, your block, your town, who you vote for, what you say at parties, what you do or do not buy. There's anxiety, I know. There's ambivalence. I know. But despite it all, let's see if we can't land together at aspiration, right? And then just get to work. Because that is actually really and truly, and I mean it, how we survive. How We Survive was created and hosted by me, Molly Wood. Haley Hirschman produced this episode with help from Grace Rubin and Mark A. Green. Haley, Grace, and I wrote it. Editing by Caitlin Esch. Scoring and sound design by Chris Tulin. Mixing by Brian Allison. Satara Nieves is our executive producer. Donna Tam is our director of On Demand. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible at Marketplace and APM. We are so grateful for this opportunity. And thank you for listening. How We Survive will return. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.